Well, good morning, Baylife. How are we? Doing okay? If you would do me a courtesy, turn in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. We will be in chapter 1, specifically verses 7 to 10. And you might recall, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, that we've been walking together through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse. Uh, Mark's done a great job so far of sort of expositing these passages of scripture, and we're going to spend the better part of a year as a church walking through this book together. There is a lot of ground to cover. Uh, But I realize that some of us who are here, maybe this is your first time at church, maybe this is your first time in the book of Ephesians, you don't really know what we're looking at, and so before we spend the next 30 minutes or so walking through this text together, it'd be worthwhile to get some background so that you know uh, sort of the, the area of scripture that we're stepping into this morning. So let me just give you sort of a a brief background. Uh, The the New Testament is a fascinating document in that it is a document comprised of documents. Uh, There is not one author to the New Testament, but it's a plurality of authors coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different upbringings and economic classes, and yet they're all telling this remarkably unified story. The, Old Testament, or the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which recount the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And then it begins to trace the, uh, the spread of this good news of what God has done in Christ. But news is different in the ancient world. Uh, news in our day and age travels immediately, instantaneously. You post it on Facebook <laughs> Uh, a news media posts it on their website, and then everybody who has access to the internet knows. It doesn't go that way in the ancient world. In order for news to travel, it has to travel by word of mouth, on foot, and by letter. And the New Testament is predominantly composed of letters. Now, letters are a lost art in many ways. Like a couple weeks ago, I was writing a thank you letter to one of my volunteers in college and career, and I actually had to Google, how do you address an envelope, because I couldn't remember. It had been so long since I, and I knew at one point how to address an envelope, but it's been so long, and there's been so many emails and text messages that don't require me to do any sort of formal addressing that I couldn't remember how to do it anymore. In the modern world, we communicate electronically through things like email, text message, social media, Letters are something that we've lost, lost our grasp of. When I was in elementary school, uh, there was a couple different skills that my teachers insisted, this is going to be necessary for you to be a fully functioning adult. You need to know how to do this. And little did they know that just about all of those skills would be replaced by the smartphone. Uh, but one of them was writing in cursive. Hey, listen, one day you're going to go to college, Travis, and when you're in college, your professors are going to be giving lectures, and you're going to have to take notes on what they say. Cursive is faster than writing out in uh, sort of your standard script. And so you need to learn how to write in cursive so you can take notes on what your professors say. I went to college with a laptop, and I can type faster than I can write. Uh, or, hey, Travis, one day you're going you're gonna to drive, and, and there's going to come a point where you're driving somewhere, and you get lost, and there's nobody in your passenger seat to tell you how to get there, give you directions, and so you need to know how to read a map. Uh, you'll pull the map out of your glove compartment, and you'll figure out where you are and where you're going. But now I have Siri and Google Maps telling me exactly where I'm going. The letters were grouped in with those sort of things. But, but the strange thing about letters is even as a kid, we had email, we had cell phones. There were other ways of communicating, but this was something that was insisted on. 
And I, I think that's probably because in some ways letter writing is a more human way of talking to one another than what we do nowadays. A number of years ago, there was an attempt uh, by a guy who I think was really noble in his desire to sort of bring the New Testament up to date so that modern people could read it and understand it and grasp sort of the depths of it. And so he updated the language and he, he paraphrased a lot of things that he felt like people wouldn't be able to understand. But then when he got to the letters, in your Bible, Ephesians probably has a heading. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians is what mine says. He changed the heading to the email of Paul to the Ephesians. And so it said from paul at gmail.com to ephesus at aol.com if you can even remember that maybe he like cc'd god on the email or something like that i don't really know but um first of all let me say as somebody who was probably the target demographic for that that is unbelievably lame to me like that does not in any way make me more excited about reading the bible actually that removes some of its power in my opinion but it also commits this fundamental category mistake of thinking that means of communication are interchangeable with one another. This fundamental mistake of thinking that there's just a, just a functional equivalence between emails and letters. The only difference between emails and letters, this man might say, is that emails arrive faster and letters arrive slower, but they're basically doing the same thing. Listen, they're not. They're not the same. Paul, in the, in the book of Galatians, will say to the church in Galatia at one point, see with what large letters I write to you. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. The implication being that the, the Galatians are so familiar with these tangible physical letters that Paul has written with his very hand that they can recognize his handwriting. You know it's me. Look at the handwriting. What, what is the email equivalent to that? I, Paul, sign my name in italicized Times New Roman 11-point font. So yeah, you, you should be sure that it's me. It's not the same. There's not an equivalence here. The other thing that letters do, as opposed to our modern communication, is they force you to actually think about what you're saying. They force you to slow down. Here's a thought experiment. Reflect on the last five emails you've sent and whether you can remember anything you said in them. I mean, you may remember the point that you made, but, but in fact, most of us can't remember what we said because we're sort of typing thoughtlessly. It's this quick means of communication. Many times, uh, Grammarly or autocorrect is telling you what to say. It's correcting your own language so that you sound uh, more put together and, and more intelligent, more articulate. But letters, when you put pen to paper, you are conjuring those words out of the void of your mind. It causes you to think much more carefully. In, in 62 AD, Paul puts pen to paper while he's in prison. He writes to the church in Ephesus, and he chooses his words carefully, especially in the first two chapters that we're spending our time in, where Paul talks about what it means to be saved. And so to, this morning, I, I hope that we can just spend some time reflecting on the words that Paul uses, because they're not incidental or accidental or thoughtless. He chooses them very carefully as he describes Christian salvation. I don't know if Mark mentioned this last week, uh, but verses 3 through 10 in the Greek are a single sentence. Uh, Paul means for them to be an unbroken thought. And so here's what I'm going to do. We're going to spend our time in 7 through 10, but I want you to hear the full thought behind what Paul is saying. So would you hear the word of the Lord with me? This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. Paul says this, Blessed be God, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul begins with what we've talked about over these last few weeks. He blesses God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for adopting us, for predestining us, for choosing us before the foundations of the world to be saved. This is what Mark did such a great job of discussing last week. And then he describes how God did it. This is what God did to adopt us. This is what God chose us for. And so in verse 7, he says this, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Let's talk about this word, redemption, because we still use this phrase fairly often. I mean, in sort of the wider culture outside of the church, uh, you can have two sports teams that play each other, and one loses, and then the next season they have a rematch, and and commentators will say things like they've got their shot at redemption. It's a a phrase that we use. Or, Or maybe you've got a friend who's let you down in some ways, but has come through for you in some other area, and you you say things like, they've redeemed themselves in my eyes. But we use this phrase in the church as well. It it makes its way into all of our songs. It makes its way onto our coffee mugs. It it makes its way into our Facebook status updates. It makes its way into our Christmas cards. We use this word redemption knowing that it vaguely has something to do with salvation, and, and it sounds fairly spiritual because the Bible uses it an awful lot. But here's what I'm afraid of. The way that we use this word in the church has the possibility of, of falling prey to the criticism of a, of a German theologian named Friedrich Schleiermacher. He said, the problem with theology is that everybody just keeps talking. He says, theology ultimately becomes words about words about words, and nobody knows what any of the words mean anymore because they just keep using them. And I'm afraid that that's what's happening with redemption. It's a word that we use because it sounds spiritual and it's in the Bible, but we don't know what we're saying. Paul is not a 21st century American writing an email. He's a first century Jew writing a letter. And when he uses the word redemption, when he says that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, he expects that you know the Old Testament background of that word. He expects that you know the history of how that word has been linked with the work of God in time and space, how it's been linked with the law of God in Holy Scripture. He expects that you know what he means when he says redemption. He's not just using it because it sounds good. So here's your brief Old Testament primer on the word redemption. The first time that the word is used is in the prayer of Jacob in the book of Genesis, but it really sort of comes uh, comes into its own in the book of Exodus where God refers to himself as the redeemer of Israel as he leads Israel out of slavery uh, under the tyranny of Pharaoh and, and brings them into the promised land. And then that word starts getting used constantly in the three books that always kill your read the Bible in a year plan, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anytime you've ever tried to read the Bible through in a year, this is normally the point where people give up because it's all these sort of strange laws that seem obscure and don't seem to make any sense and we don't know how it has anything to do with Jesus and so, so we just kind of go, I'm, I'm going to move back to John, we'll try again next year. But woven throughout these really difficult texts of scripture 
is this theme of redemption. Specifically, the call on people to become redeemers, goel in the Hebrew. Every time redemption is mentioned in the Old Testament, especially in the books of the law, it's described as the responsibility of one family member to another that's fallen on hard times. So, so let me give you some examples. Uh, in Leviticus, uh, it poses this hypothetical situation and sort of issues a command in light of it. Suppose that you have a, a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle or, or a, a parent who's fallen on to financial hard times. They can't pay their bills, and so they have to start selling their livestock and their land in order to pay their debts. Leviticus says that if you are their relative and you are better off than they are, your responsibility is to become their redeemer and buy their land and property back for them. You could take it a step further because that's what Leviticus does. It says, suppose that you have a family member who is so impoverished that they have to sell themselves into slavery to be able to pay their bills. That's the only thing they have. They've sold their land, they've sold their cattle. It's still not enough, and so they have to sell themselves as slaves and workers. Leviticus 25 says your responsibility, if you have the means, is to become their redeemer and buy them back out of slavery. Numbers in Deuteronomy goes even a step further. It says, suppose that you have a family member who's been murdered, uh, the, the victim of profound injustice. Your responsibility is to become their redeemer and advocate for justice on the part of the one who committed the crime, or justice against the one who committed the crime. Here's the point. Redemption in the Bible over and over and over again describes the responsibility of family. It's the responsibility that one member of a family has to another. So when Paul says that we have been redeemed, he's describing the responsibility that God has taken upon himself to become our father. Now, God is not our father in the same way that he's the father of Christ Jesus God is the father of Jesus by eternal generation. But Paul explains how we've become children of God, how he stepped into this role of redeemer in the the passage that Mark taught for us last week. He has adopted us into his family and so taken on that responsibility to redeem us. Adoption is a very different way of entering a family than than the normal biological means. Uh, Absolutely equivalent in terms of its significant, but just different in terms of how it happens. I I remember uh, reading a couple years ago, there was a theologian and an apologist, uh, and he tends to write books about atheism and and modern philosophy, but he wrote this book that was more of like an autobiography, probably in 2010, just describing this this season of his life. And and he, he talks about it in the beginning of the book, his son and his wife went on a missions trip to the Ukraine. And in the Ukraine, they were serving in an orphanage uh, because in this particular region, uh, there was an influx of orphans and there weren't enough sort of uh, workers to be able to care for all of the children that were in these orphanages. And so his wife and his son went as missionaries to, to help the orphanage workers. And while he was back in Birmingham, his wife sent him an email. And she said, listen, I know... Uh, that we've talked about adoption in the past. I know that we've talked about the possibility of, of bringing someone into our family. Uh, and I know that it's always fallen through for, for whatever reason. It hasn't felt the right, like the right time. The money hasn't been there. But, but there's, a, there's a girl at this orphanage. She's five or six years old named Sasha. And, and our son and I have been talking, and, and I feel like God might be calling us to adopt this girl. 
And so the, the dad writes back and he says, I know we've talked about this, but international adoption is a very different thing from local adoption, and I, I don't really know how this works, and I'm open to it, but I'm not willing to say yes or no, we, we need to talk about this more. And then he gets another email back uh, from his son, and he says, you know, mom and I, uh, we just talked with the director of the orphanage, uh, and she explained to us why Sasha hasn't been adopted. Uh, it's because she has a chronic illness uh, that carries a lot of social stigma over here in the Ukraine. And so every time that the adoption process has begun, uh, her potential adoptive parents have found out about her illness and they've become afraid and they've run away. And they've halted the process. They're afraid of the cost. They're afraid of the emotional risk. They're afraid of what it might require of them. And so they back out. Ultimately, this family, this husband, this wife, and this son said, we're not afraid of those things. We're not afraid of the risk. We're not afraid of the potential emotional heartache that might come with this illness. We're not afraid of the financial costs. We're going to bring this girl into our family. But they did that with eyes wide open, knowing full well what it might require of them. Here's why this matters. Um, Paul says that we have been adopted into the family of God, especially for those of you who struggle to, to wrap your mind around what God thinks of you in light of your failures and your mistake and your shame and, and all the things that you've done in your life. Hear this well. God adopted you. He did this with eyes wide open. He knew what he was getting himself into, and he chose you anyways. But this term redemption in the Old Testament, it it always describes a person or a people that are under the sort of the heavy yoke of tyranny and they're being set free from some sort of a tyrant. And so if you can believe it, Christians argue about what this word means. Does it surprise you that Christians argue about things? Unfortunately, it shouldn't. So the question becomes, what are we redeemed from? God redeemed us. He's taken us into his family. But what has he redeemed us from? Who has he redeemed us from? And there's, there's an awful lot of opinions on this, but there's these two main camps that people tend to separate into. One perspective says this. We are under the tyranny and under slavery to Satan, and that's why we sin. And so at the cross, what Jesus does is set us free from the power of Satan. This is called the Christus Victor theory of atonement. And then the other perspective says, no, the problem, the, the, the yoke that has to be broken for us to be redeemed is that we are slaves to sin. And, and what has to, to be lifted from us is the burden of God's wrath. So what happens at the cross is that Jesus bears our sin and the wrath of God in our place. And that's what we're redeemed from. It's from the wrath of God. This is called the substitutionary theory of atonement. Both of these camps argue all the time. They just go back and forth about which view is more biblical and which one makes the most sense of, of all of the passages of Scripture. And, and certainly there's some good and helpful debate that's happening there. But, but let me just propose this. If you think of both of these theories rightly, they're both true. But one precedes the other. Christ triumphs over Satan through bearing our sin and judgment. And that's how he redeems us. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that through kind of a strange analogy. So when I was in kindergarten, especially during free time, my favorite thing to do was draw maps. This is probably because my teachers were telling me I needed to know something about maps to be a successful adult. And so this is the way that I would draw maps as a kindergartner. I would take my piece of paper, I'd draw two or three stick figures at the top, and then I'd draw 
my best attempt at a treasure chest at the bottom, which tended to just be a square because three-dimensional shapes didn't come easy to me in kindergarten. And then I would put my pen at the top left corner of the paper, and I would scribble with my eyes closed until it connected with the, the treasure chest at the bottom. It was kind of like modern art. It, 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 was, it was brilliant. Um, so, so one day, uh, a friend of mine, and, and I use that term friend with some sincerity, but, but I also would say he was kind of a frenemy of mine because I, I loved him as a friend, but also kind of hated him in this deep, dark part of my heart because of things like what I'm about to describe. He looks at my map, which was a great map, and he says, Travis, I really like that map you made. We'll call him Steve. And I said, thanks, Steve. I know, it's a good map. I've been working on maps for a while now. He said, Travis, can, can you make a map like that for me? I said, of course, Steve. I'm sure most people would like a fine map like this hanging in their living room. And so I pull out my piece of paper, and I, I draw a couple stick figures, and I draw the treasure chest at the bottom, and I get ready to scribble. And he goes, no, no, no I want a map exactly like that one. And I was like, Steve, there's no, there's no way. I'm, I'm in kindergarten, and I know that this can't be replicated. I closed my eyes and scribbled. Like, there's no, there's no way for me to do that. And he goes, Travis, you remember on the playground last week when you called our friend John an idiot? I said, yeah. He goes, I'm going to tell the teacher if you don't make an exact map like that one. So this is like blackmail in kindergarten. I'm a nervous kid. And so I kind of freak out a little bit. It's like, I don't even remember if I did that, but assuming I did, I'm going to get in so much trouble. And so what follows for the next week is me just like on the verge of tears, sweating profusely, desperately trying to draw a map for Steve so he won't tell the teacher what I've done. And in this regard, Steve gains power over me. How? Through accusation, through reminding me of my guilt, and warning me of coming judgment. But make no mistake, I did whatever Steve said out of fear of the consequences of my failure. But, but let's suppose, hypothetically, that my teacher were to walk up to me and say, hey, Travis, um, I know that you called John an idiot on the playground last week. John and I have forgiven you. We're not going to punish you. Uh, you've been forgiven. Steve loses all his power over me because the power of accusation is gone. Here's why all of this matters, because again and again and again in Scripture, Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. So in some mysterious sense, outside of Christ, we are under the power of Satan, but his power comes from the fact that he can rightly accuse us and rightly remind us of the coming judgment of God against our sin. That is his power over us like it was Steve's power over me to make maps. But here's what Paul says happens in Ephesians in verse 7. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So here is how God redeems us, how Christ is both the substitute and the victor. Because in bearing our judgment and our sin on the cross, he has removed the ability of Satan to accuse us. He has also become victorious over Satan and destroyed his power over us. 
This is why in the book of John, Jesus can say, now does the ruler of this world stand condemned as he goes to the cross. Now shall he be cast out. This is why in Colossians, Paul can say that Jesus has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. This is why the book of Hebrews can say that at the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of Satan and his hold over men who have spent their whole lives as slaves to the fear of dying. By being our substitute, he also becomes victor and sets us free from the captivity of Satan and his accusations against us because they are groundless for those who are in Christ. But Paul goes on. It's not just redemption. It's not just Christ's forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say this, that we have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul says that, that on top of the grace of being redeemed, the power of Satan being broken, our, our guilt being absolved, God has also revealed to us the mystery of his will. And he says that mystery is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. Two mistakes that we as modern Christians tend to make when we think about eternity. One, we think that the opposite of heaven is hell. Two, we think that the point of the Christian life is to die and go to heaven. Now let me be very clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I affirm the historic orthodox view of the reality of hell for those who are apart from Christ. But nowhere in the Bible is hell mentioned as the counterpart to heaven. You can look through your whole Bible and you won't find it. Heaven and hell are never mentioned together. You know what is mentioned next to heaven? Earth. Heaven and earth in the Bible are seen as two sides of the same coin, but separated by sin. And so what happens when, when we misunderstand what the opposite of heaven is, uh, is that we also misunderstand the whole end goal of salvation, which is that the purpose of salvation is for us to die and God, for God to take us out of earth and take us to heaven. But listen, that's not how the Bible ends. The Bible doesn't end with every Christian dying and going to heaven. You can read the book of Revelation. That doesn't happen. You know how it does end? Heaven and earth being brought back together. That's the point of salvation. Not that all of us would die and go to heaven, but I, hear me again. I affirm, when we die, this side of Christ's return, we are absent with the body and present with the Lord. But that is not the final state for the believer. The final state is a new heavens and a new earth. The God that walked among humanity in Eden will once again walk among us in the new heavens and the new earth and wipe every tear from our eyes. That is physically, that is not some spiritual, vague, metaphorical language. That is a physical reality that comes at the end of time when Christ returns. That is the goal, that is the mystery of God's will to unite heaven and earth together once again in Christ Jesus. Here's why this matters. Here's why this is, this I think Paul refers to as a grace. Um, right around the same time that I'm drawing maps, uh, trying to learn skills to be an adult, uh, being blackmailed by my friend in kindergarten, um, my parents also signed me up for art classes with my Uncle Jono. Some of you might know him. He and my Aunt Mary were founding members of this church. My Uncle Jono is an incredible artist. He's trained as a landscape architect, and so he's teaching me how to draw, but he's not teaching me how to draw the cartoons that I'm watching on TV. He's teaching me how to draw basic shapes. Everything that we see is ultimately comprised of primary shapes, and you just have to figure out how to, to do that well and fit those together if you want to be a great artist. It's not really that simple, but that's what he told me. 
And so, he's teaching me circles, he's teaching me squares, and he's teaching me lines. And he said, here's the problem, Travis. Most people, when they want to draw lines, uh, put their pen down on a piece of paper, and they just look at the pen, and they draw for as long as they want, and then they pick the pen up. And what happens is they don't draw lines, they draw waves, because the line is not straight. He said, that's because people aren't drawing lines right. The way that you draw a line, if you really want it to be straight, is that you make a start point and an end point. And you put your pen on the start point, and then you look at the end point, and you bring your pen towards the end point. That's how to draw a straight line, or as straight a line as a fallen human being can produce. There's something about knowing the end towards which a thing is directed that radically affects how it operates in the present. There's something about knowing where that line is going that causes the drawing of the line to be straighter. There's something about knowing the end towards which we're going that causes us to act differently in the here and now. Imagine if alongside reading the Bible in a year, one of your New Year's resolutions was to get in shape, and so you sign up at UFIT, and the first thing they do is hand you a picture of what you will look like if you stick with your workout regimen for six months. Well, nobody is breaking that. I mean, maybe a few people. But knowing the end changes the present. Imagine then knowing the mystery of God's will, what he intends to do in Christ, what the purpose of salvation is. How does that radically reorient how we live in the here and now, that the end game of history is the union of heaven and earth once again? I'll tell you, if God's ultimate goal is to restore creation, it affects how we care for creation now. I'll tell you, if you know that your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, along with you, will see Christ together, side by side, you're going to treat one another differently in the here and now. If you know that the end game of history is the union of heaven and earth, as Paul says, according to the mystery of God's will, you're going to pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, with greater fervency, knowing that one day that will be true. God shows us the end to change how we live in the present. And when we lose sight of the end, we lose our way in the here and now. But God doesn't just expect us to, to remember these realities on our own power. Maybe set a reminder in your phone uh, for the future of creation once a day, probably around noon. You know, God gives us tangible ways to, to be reminded of these things. The, the first time that God takes for himself the title of redeemer is in the book of Exodus. And as he redeems Israel out of the tyranny of slavery under Pharaoh, there are two signs that accompany their redemption. One, Israel passes through the waters of the Red Sea. Two, Israel shares the Passover meal of bread and wine. These are the two marks of redemption. When God becomes redeemer, this is what it looks like. Paul says that what happened to us in Christ when he destroyed the power of Satan over us and bore our guilt and carried our iniquities, when these things happened, it was a new exodus. It was an act of redemption. This new exodus has the same signs as the first one. If you're a Christian, you have passed through the Red Sea of baptism. If you're a Christian, you share the new Passover meal on the table of the Lord that sits at the center of our room every week. These are the signs, the seals, the reminders of God's redemption. But let me just get on my soapbox for a second because uh, this is, we're going to do theology for a minute. Um, 
in the modern evangelical church, we have so flattened out baptism and communion as to make it functionally irrelevant. We're so afraid of sounding too old-fashioned and too archaic and too ancient and not Protestant enough. We're so afraid of saying things that might sound that way that we don't say anything at all. And so we functionally just shrug our shoulders and are like, well, baptism is just a way that we can tell the world what we think about Jesus. And, and the Lord's Supper is just a way for you to remember Jesus. And it's just this, and it's only this, and it's just this. And we, we ultimately are just wringing our hands verbally like, please don't think we're weird. Please don't think this stuff is strange. It's not really that big of a deal. It's kind of insignificant. It's not that important. And we downplay, and we downplay, and we downplay until it basically sounds like if we found a better way to let the world know what we think of Jesus, maybe through a status update, or a better way to remember Jesus, maybe through setting a reminder on our phone, that would be just as good because these things aren't that important. They're just whatever. Here's the problem. That functions on a paradigm that is unbiblical, which is that in the table in bread and wine and in the waters of baptism, all that's happening is that we're saying something about God. That's not what's happening, at least not the whole story. At baptism, at communion, God is saying something to us about us. God is speaking, not just you. The, the paradigm for baptism in the early church was the baptism of Jesus. That's what the early church looked to as the standard for what is happening in baptism. At the baptism of Jesus, heaven opens and the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And if what Paul says here is true, that you have been adopted, that God has taken on the role of redeemer, that he's brought you into his family, then in some mysterious way that I don't presume to understand, in baptism, God is saying of you, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. God is speaking, not just you. At the table of the Lord, this is not just you remembering Jesus to the best of your recollection, but at the table of the Lord, in some mysterious way, God is saying to you, you once feasted at the table of demons in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, but now I bring you to the table of the king, not as enemies, not as foes, not even as people I'm vaguely indifferent to, but as people who I have adopted, and my adopted children eat at my table. God is speaking there. It's not insignificant, Balak. And here's the deal. It doesn't just call us back to the signs of redemption. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, these gifts from God, they draw us forward. Did you know that in the churches that practice last rites, one of the last things that people hear before they die are the words that were spoken over them in baptism? Why? Is that because it's cool and ancient and, and vaguely spiritual? No, it's because baptism says this person in this body has been marked for resurrection. This person who dies now will be raised to walk in newness of life on that day when God unites heaven and earth in Christ. At, at the table of the Lord, as you come to communion, you're not just remembering Jesus. You're looking forward at that table. God is saying, this person eating this bread, drinking this wine, will share bread and wine with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the reunion of all things. It is drawing us forward as well as pulling us back. It, it's these pillars of redemption that are meant to remind us of who we are, and we walk past it on our cell phones like it's a little thing, like it's insignificant, like it's peripheral to the Christian life. God's speaking to you here. God's speaking to you out there. 
So let me, let me get imminently practical. Um, next Sunday is Baptism Sunday here at our church. You know what I would love? I would love for all of us to go out and watch those baptisms. Because the temptation for us is to say something like, well, I don't really know the people getting baptized, so I'll probably go get my kids and I'll go to my car. But I would love for us to go and see our brothers and sisters say, I have laid hold of the gospel with my life. And I would love for us to go and in baptism hear God say, this is now your brother or sister who will inherit the kingdom with you. Love them, care for them. We have communion here in our church every week. How many of us have neglected it because we think it's a little thing? Now, this, is, this is a vibrant mark of our redemption that echoes the redemption of Israel. It sits at the heart of our service. Paul says we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. God has revealed to us the mystery of his will to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And then he gives us signs and seals to remind us and encourage us and draw us forward. Baylife, can I plead with you, lay hold of these things. Walk in remembrance of redemption and in light of the future of all things in Christ, the reunion of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, we know that the ability to call you Father uh, is not a right but a privilege given to us by Christ. It's a right that you've given us in adopting us in salvation. Lord, I pray that where we have grown numb to that reality, Lord, that you would soften our hearts. Where we've neglected uh, these marks of redemption that remind us of who we are. God, that you would give us grace to, to be renewed in our joy and our excitement. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, that you would strengthen them Remind them uh, that in Christ they are not enemies or slaves, but sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability now to walk in light of our redemption, in light of the mystery of your will, to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ Jesus. Draw us back together safely next week uh, to hear your word preached and your kingdom proclaimed. We ask all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.